Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Increasingly, I view politics with bewilderment, not just domestically, but around the world. Increasingly, I find myself looking at people who have been promoted or elected to power, and I see a darkness. I look at opinion polls and mutter to myself, what do others see that I just don't? That question at times turned into existential crisis. Brexit was my moment of truly growing up politically, of realising that even in a democracy, sometimes the bad people, the liars, the demagogues, they win, not temporarily, but permanently. There's no cathartic comeuppance riding to the rescue, no karmic punishment that will triumph. My guest has spent a considerable portion of his life looking into the white of the eyes of those in charge. His Power Corrupts podcast is essential listening. He's also an associate professor at the University College London and a regular denizen of the bunker. His latest book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, pulls together the threads of hundreds of interviews to provide some answers. Welcome to the bunker, Brian Klaas. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Always such a pleasure. Brian, before we go into anything else, I am intrigued by the title in that it provides half an answer. Who gets power and how it changes us? That would seem to me to imply that we all have power to a certain extent and that it has the potential to change all of us. Is that intentional? Should we see ourselves in those we criticize Yeah, it's a great question. What I think I'm referring to in the us is human beings, because what I'm trying to figure out is, is it that bad people seek power or is that power turns people bad? And that's one of the driving research questions that sparked this book. And I think diagnosing that is crucial because we often bandy about this phrase, you know, power corrupts is the title of my podcast after all. But I also wanted to want, you know, I was trying to figure out, is that actually true? Because If the person is rotten to begin with, then the solution to that is different than if the system has turned them into a corrupt person. Hmm. And I think what I'm discovering in writing this book, what I discovered in writing it, was that the actual answer is much more complex. Some of the time it's rotten people. Some of the time it's rotten systems. Some of the time, you know, power turns people bad. But the Hmm. us in the subtitle is referring to human beings because I think the capacity of us to be swayed by power is something about our species. It's not just about the bad people we love to hate. Because you do touch on this this notion, which is, you may or may not be aware, is the central tenet of of a thing called radical forgiveness. This idea that if we can see ourselves, the people that we consider most reprehensible, then that can begin a process of understanding and healing, and ultimately understanding means that we can also shift them out of power. While if you sort of view them as a completely separate alien species, as I do much of the time, then you've got no chance of shifting them. Yeah, I think that's a very astute comment, because what I tried to do in writing the book is I tried to dissociate myself and my moral judgments from the people who I was encountering who were some of the worst of humanity. I mean, in writing this book, I sat down with the worst bioterrorist in in American history. I sat down with people who ordered live rounds to be used on protesters, you know, corrupt kingpins, Mm -hmm. you name it, right? The horrible, horrible people. 
And yet what I wanted to figure out is how we can blunt their impact on our society. And that requires some dissociation from my moral judgments because it doesn't really matter what I think. It matters how we can stop them. And so one of the things that I, I thought was quite interesting in, in, in researching the book was a great example was one of the last things I did before before the pandemic ended was, or sorry, before the pandemic started, <laughs> was going to Vermont and having a ski lesson with a man named Paul Bremer, who some of your listeners will remember as the guy who ruled Iraq after the Bush administration decided to invade in 2003. He was basically in charge of Iraq for a year. And he's now a ski instructor in Vermont. So I wrote to him and I said, you know, can I interview you? And he said, sure, why don't you come out and have a ski lesson? So we chatted on a chairlift and then uh, back at his house afterwards. And many listeners will view Paul Bremer as unequivocally a villain. And I think there's, there's merit to that point of view. I understand that point of view. But what I wanted to understand was why does he end up doing the things that he does? How does he end up in this position? And how could we understand his experience as something that teaches us a lesson about power? Because Paul Bremer, before he ran Iraq, was ambassador to Norway and Malawi and a few other places where he served with distinction. Nobody criticized him, really. Mm -hmm. And then when he gets to Iraq, one of the first things he decides to do is to float the idea of shooting looters, people who were stealing televisions and other things yeah. in the chaos after the invasion, as a way to send a message that order has been restored by the US government. And the thing that stuck out to me was... Paul Bremer never would have said that in Norway. We can agree, whatever you think about yeah, Paul Bremer, yeah. he never would have floated that idea in Oslo. And so the, 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 the insight that I think is so crucial to take away from some of these aspects that I write about extensively in the book is we are not uniformly the same person in different contexts. We behave hmm. differently when different systemic pressures get put on us. And Paul Bremer in Iraq is different from Paul Bremer in Norway. And that means that we are also different in different contexts. So one of the provocative questions I open the book with is, how would you behave if you became the dictator of Turkmenistan? Yeah. You know, the, the rules were off. And that speaks to this idea of, can we recognize ourselves, as you say in your question, in the, in the eyes or the minds of these people that we see as monsters? I have to say, throughout reading the book, the, the one thought that kept coming back to me as an actor is the the very smart directorial advice I once had that th there isn't a villain that considers themselves a villain, with very, very few exceptions, that for every wicked person you play in a film or a play, there is another film or a play in which they are the hero. And that's how we tend to, to cast ourselves. Now, the book sets out very explicitly to answer four questions, and I think they're worth quoting in, in full. First, do worse people get power? Second, does power make people worse? Third, why do we let people control us who clearly have no business being in control? And fourth, how can we ensure that incorruptible people get into power and wield it justly? Can we take them in turn? Does power attract the wrong sorts of people to begin with? Yes, it does. Uh, and, and this is one of the, I think, the core messages of the book. There's a self-selection effect with power. People who are power-hungry, abusive, Machiavellian, narcissistic, psychopathic, are drawn to power like moths to a flame. Mm. And, and I think this is one of the big takeaways of the book, which probably isn't news to people. The dynamics of how it actually functions, I think, are quite interesting. 
And I think the reason why it's more complex than we initially might assume is because there's this aspect of the system that completely mediates what kinds of people are attracted to systems of power. Hmm. So one example I wanted to bring up is this idea of policing, right? I mean, I talk about the US, the UK, New Zealand in, in, in the book, but Obviously, in the UK, it's been a huge issue as a, as a result of a lot of high-profile police abuse and even murder cases. And so what I did was I thought, you know, who wants to become a police officer? Well, it depends on how you recruit. That's the big, the big lesson that I learned. And when I looked at, at recruiting videos that were on websites in places like Doraville, Georgia, this town of 10,000 people outside of Atlanta, I mean, it's, it looks like an absurd parody to, to British eyes. It is a video that starts with the Punisher logo, a, a vigilante comic book hero, anti-hero, I should say, who tortures his enemies and, and criminals. Then it has guys in military fatigues in a literal tank scream into view, get out of the tank, throw some smoke grenades, fire their weapons, get back into the tank and then drive off and the Punisher logo returns. And that's the recruitment video for the local police department, right? Of a town of 10,000 people. That's going to attract a very particular kind of person, isn't it? Well, and deter a very particular kind of person too, right? I mean, if you're a normal community support officer who thinks I'd like to just sort of help my community, you're going to not apply to that department. What New Zealand did was they very deliberately designed a recruitment video, spent a lot of money, made a glitzy sort of PR campaign, where this very funny recruitment video features a lot of non-traditional police officers who are underrepresented in the force, which is to say lots of women and lots of ethnic minorities, particularly from the Maori indigenous community. And they're doing funny things. They're helping old people cross the street and then stopping to dance for a little while, all while they're chasing this unseen perpetrator. And at the end, the perpetrator turns out to be a border collie who has stolen a purse. And at the end, instead of the Punisher logo, it flashes, do you care enough to be a cop on the screen? Right? I mean, the difference between those two recruitment videos is night and day. It's, it's unbelievably stark. And surprise, surprise, the people who applied for the force in New Zealand were much better after this recruitment video. They were much more diverse. They were much less prone to abusive behavior. And of course, the results spoke for themselves too, that there was fewer instances of police abuse and also better relationships between police forces and the you know, minority communities that now are more represented in the police departments around New Zealand. So one of the main things that I think is, is worth considering is, yes, corruptible people are drawn to power. I talk a little bit about this from a genetic basis, from a socialization basis, but you can actually counteract some of that if you design the system intelligently. And that's what's missing from a lot of our political business, you know, sports, all sorts of systems don't think carefully about recruitment and they need to. I particularly remember there was uh, uh, some polling in 2012 that looked at uh, the issue for whom the Greek police were voting and found that over 50% of them were voting for Golden Dawn, mm. which is the far-right party in Greece. And I don't mean sort of cuddly racists with ties on. I mean actual Nazis um, who sort of worship at uh, the mausoleum of Mussolini every year on the day of his birthday. And that was quite quite a sobering statistic that, you know, half of the rank and file in the police force are actual fascists. Power is, of course, not an absolute point in every case. It is often a ladder. It seems to me that people without moral obstacles 
have a systemic advantage in climbing it, do they not? Yes, they do. Uh, so I have a chapter on what's called the dark triad, mm. and, and some listeners may be familiar with this, but it's basically this potent cocktail of three awful traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, or being a psychopath. And all of us have the dial on these three traits turned up a little bit, right? And in a different context, we might be a little bit more egotistical, a little bit more strategic with our thinking and the Machiavellian sense, hopefully not too psychopathic. But when you get the dial turned up high on all of these traits, the really bad news for us is that those people are exceptionally good at obtaining power. They're obsessed by it. And then once they get power, they're really bad at wielding it and extremely destructive. Mm, mm. And I spoke to a lot of psychopath experts. I have some, some colorful stories of actual psychopaths in the book as well. But the psychopath experts all said two of the same things to me. In every single interview, these Those are experts on psychopathy, I should say. Correct. Rather yes, than not, not actual experts who are psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the experts on psychopathy. To a person, these two lines of, of statements sort of came up in every single person I talked to who's an, who studies psychopaths. The first thing is they said they have superficial charm. This is like the two words that are associated with psychopaths, which means they're exceptionally good at getting you to like them if all you have is a bit of a glimpse of them. Well, I yeah. mean, that describes politicians to a T, right? I yeah. mean, we get this sort of flash of who they are, but we don't actually know them. The job interview is tailor-made for psychopaths because they have to convince you that they're a likable, well, you know, respectable person for 45 minutes and then they get the job. So that's one aspect. The other one that came up a lot was this idea of, you know, when you think of psychopaths, you think of serial killers. You think of these awful people that Netflix documentaries are made about. And they all said the same thing. They said, those are the unsuccessful psychopaths. Those are the ones who dropped like flies because they were so psychopathic that they couldn't make it. They couldn't be disciplined when they had to be disciplined. The successful psychopaths are in the boardroom and in political office. And we have lots of evidence that there's massive overrepresentation of people with dark triad traits at the highest echelons of our society, unfortunately. On to the second question, does power make good people bad? There is evidence that points in both directions in the book. Give us a flavor of a sort of case study that argues for that and one that argues against it? Sure. So I think there is pretty clear evidence that power does make people worse, that power corrupts is actually a true statement. I don't focus on it extensively. I have one chapter in the book about it. And the reason I don't focus on it as extensively is partly because people take this as given and partly because it's actually, I think, the least interesting part of power. I think that it, it does turn people into more self-obsessed, more reckless, more risk-taking types of people with less empathy. There's lots of evidence. I, you know, I sketch through the, the neuroscience evidence, the psychology evidence. It actually changes your brain. But then I also did some case studies. And I think one of the ones that I wanted to point to was interviewing this woman named Ma Anand Sheila, who, if you've seen this Netflix documentary called Wild Wild Country, she is the the right-hand woman to a cult leader named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And she effectively was an art student at first, joins this cult, becomes basically the voice of, you know, sort of a god on earth. And the power completely warps her. She does some crazy things, including plotting to assassinate various public officials, poisoning people with water. She, she, 
puts uh, poison and toxins into water that's served to public officials. She then also tries to poison a thousand people with salmonella as a way to manipulate a county level election uh, in Oregon in the 1980s. And by the way, when, when I went and met with her, this speaks to this sort of you didn't yeah, have the canapes. Well, I, I actually, it's so, it so funny because she offered me water and, and I panicked. I was like, what do I say to this? Like you poisoned somebody with a glass of water in the past. I know you did this. So I didn't know what to say to like politely refuse. So I said, thank you. I've already had some, which is like not a normal thing to say about water. But anyway, I wasn't going to drink it. Uh, splendid. But, but she, you know, the thing that's interesting about her is – She has this rise to power. She has this completely warped behavior. She does four years in prison, is deported. She now lives in this like picture-perfect Swiss village. And the amazing thing is the Swiss government has put her in charge of a care home for people with schizophrenia and other disorders. They're vulnerable people. And she's done nothing wrong since, as far as I can tell. And the reason I included her in the book was because it's this clear-cut case of like this person who just becomes a monster. And then stops you know, as soon as she loses power. And it's not always so clear cut, but I think there is something to be said about this idea of, of power actually changing your brain and making you believe. For example, one of the studies I cite in the, in the book, which I find quite interesting was they have this study where they say, you know, do you want to roll a dice? And if you get a certain number uh, over a threshold over, you know, six or seven dice. Yeah. Roll, yeah. You get some money. You get some money. And they say, you know, do you want to roll the dice or do you want somebody else to roll them for you? It doesn't matter at all. It's completely random. But people who are powerful (laughs) always want to roll the dice themselves because they have this (laughs) sense of something called illusory control. They believe that they can actually affect outcomes that they can't, which is very, very dangerous for the rest of us. So I do think power corrupts, but I think... As I say, it's it's the tip of the iceberg. It's the smallest part of the story and the one that's probably least interesting. The third issue the book seeks to address, and, and boy, is this one relevant to the UK right now, is why do we let people control us who clearly have no business being in control? You have partly hinted at some explanations in what we've talked about already in the traits of charm and, you know, an ability to persuade. And there are also, of course, our own preconceptions about what is leadership. And you cite a lot of research in the book that we perceive aggression and sort of assertiveness as leadership qualities when, in fact, quietly being able to balance competing interests might be a better one to go for. What I wanted to ask you was this, what's your view on so-called progressive alliances? Is there a case for saying, look, what is important right now is to hold our nose and vote that guy out? Or is that sort of compromise precisely the sort of values promiscuity that starts a leader down a bad road? So I believe in that sort of voting pattern when the system itself is under threat. I think that anytime you have a, for example, a democratic system, and that is being eroded and that is being threatened, that's when it's time to put the pinnacle of idealism aside and start to be pragmatic. Because if you lose the system, your future leadership choice will not be free. It will actually be uh, prescribed for you. And I think that's one of the things where, you know, you have to balance these things out. And and it's a, it's a great question that that speaks to a larger conundrum in the book, which is, 
leaders are, are, are dealing with this all the time too. I mean, I'm not an apologist for bad leaders, yeah. but I do think that if we're accurately going to judge people, we have to think carefully about how we would behave given the constraints of leadership. Now, mm. again, you don't, you don't absolve atrocious behavior, but if you understand it, you're not just better at sort of analyzing the political system, you're actually better at operating within it and getting those leaders to be thrust out of power because you've actually figured out how they're thinking, not how you're thinking from the outside looking in. We then come to the most difficult question in many ways, how do we solve this? And, and I sense a duality in you in that respect, something that perhaps you haven't entirely resolved internally. The notion of incorruptible people in power is alluring, but much of the rest of the book makes the case that there is no such thing. How do you square this circle? I think the way that I reconcile it in myself is I think right now, I think that we have a disproportionate, a massively disproportionate number of corruptible people who seek, obtain, and retain power. And I also think it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And I think you know, when, I was, when I was proposing the, the last third of the book is these 10 principles that I think can get us better leaders, get us better people into power. It's not some magical formula. I mean, there's not some magic wand that you can wave and all of a sudden the political class is full of virtuous people who you know, just want to be servant leaders and so on. Mm. But I do think that there are, are tweaks that we can make that in aggregate will, will, will move the needle towards a much better world. And so I think that these things are not inevitable. I think you know, when, I, when I talked, for example, about the job interview or about the superficial charm aspects uh, of psychopaths, we don't have to have job interviews function the same way that they do. I mean, one yeah. of the things I talk about is how valuable it would be, for example, to anonymize uh, CVs, because there's plenty of research that shows that if you change the name from a male to a female name or from a white sounding name to a black sounding name in the mm. United States, that the differences in job applications turning into interviews is skewed massively Huge. just yeah. by names. Can I ask you something? How can you ensure that, you know, because people actually who who are not politically savvy are selected in terms of jury duty and do not have maybe the financial means, hmm. they might be in an even more vulnerable position to be approached by a company or to be leaned on or even blackmailed in in certain ways, which is why we take such extraordinary precautions when it comes to juries. So how do you how do you not turn them into, you know, what James Joyce describes as the the, the oranges laid to rust upon the green by exposing them to a, a system that is quite corrupt? Well, I think you'd have to first off pay them. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be something that was voluntary, right. uh, and you'd have to give them a generous salary. I think in order to get good governance, it's a price well worth paying. And I think you'd also have to have very clear ethics rules, in which lobbyists trying to approach these people who shouldn't be approached by lobbyists for any reason whatsoever, you'd criminalize it for the lobbyists mm -hmm. themselves. This is one of those things where, when I was writing the book, I wasn't trying to make like a ten point plan of here's specifically the legal change that you'd make in this country or that country. Because I think those are the things that you can hash out. The specific details are ones that will be elastic depending on the country, the system, you know, the US will be different from the UK. Yeah, yeah. But the principle I think is, is, is crucial here. And this would, of course, you know, apply to business too. You have boards that oversee companies and the boards are basically out of touch rich people who don't understand what it's like to be an Amazon employee. So why don't we have a shadow board of governors 
for these companies that's randomly selected by the employee base, you know, and they have to make a similar decision as the board. Again, it's not binding. They don't have the power to overthrow or overturn the board, but they can make a publicly available statement of how they would have dealt with the problem, which would put pressure on the actual board, or in the case of the parliament, the, the actual politicians, to explain themselves. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all on board. I'm, I, you know, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate, but sure. I love the idea of a citizen assembly. I think it's what we need. What about toxic masculinity? You don't focus on this explicitly in the book, but I found it really difficult reading through the dozens of encounters you describe without thinking that much of the system is shaped by, frankly, angry straight men with tiny willies. <laughs> you know, is, is diversity actually an overlooked piece of, of the sanitizing puzzle of what we need to do to our politics? It's a question I'll answer on two levels. I mean, the first is the toxic masculinity is something that is part of the story, absolutely. And by the way, psychopaths are disproportionately men. So some of that is captured in the chapter mm. on the dark triad. But also there's studies, and I talk about this briefly in the book, where in non-human primates, you know, in macaques and baboons, the combination of power with injections of testosterone is extremely dangerous. The, 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 the non-human primates start to get extraordinarily abusive and awful. And, you know, that speaks some, I think that provides some lessons for our own society. Now, when you look at things like women in leadership, pretty much all of the studies conclude the same thing, that women are less prone to despotism, abusive power, all sorts of traits that we don't want in leaders. But I'm very careful in how I handle this because I don't like the idea of gender essentialism, which is the idea that women are fundamentally good at some things and fundamentally bad at some things. So I think we have to be cautious with that evidence. We have to say, okay, the studies seem to show this effect. There could be a variety of reasons for it. It could be socialization. It could be the, the, the specific study, et cetera. But on balance, I think if anything we're going to conclude, it's going to be that women are going to make better leaders in, in positions of immense authority. So I think that there's a lot to be said for the idea that First off, we should live in a society that is broadly meritocratic and also one that is broadly representative of yeah. the population. I think those are both ambitious goals, but they're ones that I think would sort out a lot of the problems I describe in the book. Brian, can much of this be eased with strict one-term limits? Alexis de Tocqueville wrote that when the representative of the executive descends into combat, the cares of government dwindle into second-rate importance, and the success of re-election becomes the first concern. And I see that a little bit. The worst excesses in democratically elected governments are usually done in the name of that leader being re-elected. Is that not a, a nice low-hanging fruit? Or are there consequences that I haven't thought about? There are consequences that you may not have thought about, particularly in the US system, where money plays such a huge role in politics. We were just talking about lobbyists. The literature in political science tends to oppose the idea of term limits because they believe that if somebody is unbridled with the threat of not being reelected, that they'll just cash in in their, in their one term. So they'll, they'll get elected and then they'll just sort of get paid off. Yeah, now, this think, is my four years, my yeah, golden exactly. ticket. <laughs> but I think you can legislate around that to an extent if you have really clean elections, if you have clean campaign finance laws and clean lobbyist rules. Yeah. And also when you have a two-term limit. Sure. I mean, 
surely exactly the same thing applies to the second term. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that I think is so important to keep in mind is that power corrupts progressively. It's not like mm. you just simply get thrust into your day one and you become an awful person. It's that the the changes, the compromises, the moral calculations that shift in your head happen day by day and, and yeah. they add up to something. So the longer someone's in office, the, 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 it's likely the worse they're going to be. And also I have a chapter on something I call the weight of responsibility, this idea of how easy it is for people who are in power for a long period of time to start seeing those who they're governing or ruling over in a business as abstractions, right? Mm -hmm. They need more reminders that these are real people. So I think you have to, to grapple with that and, and understand that this is going to get progressively worse over time. One question I would like more politicians to be asked is what accomplishment would be sufficient for you to think that your job is done and it's time to step down? Because we never really think about that. Why are you going to parliament? You know, what, yeah. is, what is the actual objective? And I wish there was more of those Sunday shows that said, if this happened, would you end your career as a politician or is this actually about you? You know, and I think that's something that, that is, is often something politicians can escape that line of questioning to all of our detriment. It seems to me, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, that occasionally democratic legitimacy is also an issue. Another Greek much older than my than myself, Euripides, wrote that <laughs> when one with honeyed words but evil mind persuades the mob, great wars befall the state. It seems to me that it is the fate of dictators to fall. The, you know, there are very few other outcomes to that story arc, but the truly sociopathic leader often has popular support. How do we cope with a wicked populist? This is one of the most interesting areas uh, of the research that I did for this book, I think. And it's, 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 it's turning the mirror back on society and saying, we always ask the question, what's wrong with them? Talking about politicians. We have to also ask the question, what's wrong with us? Because leaders can't be leaders unless they have followers. And one of the things I've discovered is that there's a lot of cognitive biases in our brain that are completely irrational, but that explain why we have strongman leaders. I'll very briefly summarize mm -hmm. a few of them. So this idea is something called the Stone Age mismatch. It's the idea that things that were adaptive or beneficial to us 50,000 years ago are no longer beneficial to us, but our brains are basically the same. They haven't mm -hmm. actually evolved. There hasn't been enough time. And so 50,000 years ago, following when you you know when you're starving or when you're about to be in conflict with a rival band of humans following the strong large man or the tall person is actually a very very adaptive way of life so yeah. is following somebody who's overconfident that's actually adaptive to to follow someone who says I can fix this for you today that's not true but because our brains haven't changed there's lots of evidence, lots and lots of evidence that suggests that the term strongman is not a misnomer. It's actually very, very apt for describing what it is. This person who is activating this latent template in our brain mm. that gravitates towards physically strong looking or at least decisive seeming affable leaders who say, I can fix this. Nobody else can. And they're extremely overconfident. And that's a much harder problem to solve because we have to acknowledge that it exists within us before we can counteract it. But I, I think there's a whole chapter in the book that talks about these cognitive biases, the stupid biases that are holdovers from very long ago in humanity's history. And yet 
they still affect us. And, mm. and that's, you know, the, the, some of the studies that I read were just mind boggling. Um, but we have to grapple with it because the effects are real. They've been replicated many times and they, they always show the same thing. Brian, I'm going to ask you one final question. The book represents an enormous body of work. You must have a sense by now of common threads between the rogues and the saints in charge that you've spoken to. What is your current sense of where the Western world, I suppose, where we are overall in this battle right now? Have we bottomed out? Is there still further down to go? Have we actually turned the corner? Are things getting better? What's your sense overall for where we are in this trajectory? The short answer is I'm extremely pessimistic in the short term and optimistic in the long run. Mm -hmm. And, And the reason for that is because the systems we've designed around power are extremely beneficial to people who are deceptive to begin with. And then you supercharge that tendency with social media and other ways of lying in popular discourse without accountability. So you've already got these systems that reward deceptive people, and then you've given them the tools to be even more effective at deceiving large numbers of people, which decreases accountability. And I think that's why we have a very simplified reason, but it's one of them for why we have this surge of sort of populist strongmen across the world. Now, I think humans are a very smart species. And once we recognize problems, we're pretty good at solving them eventually. So what I think is going to happen and what I hope is going to happen is there's going to be a reckoning at some point where we understand that we've designed a world that could be better than it is. The, the world that, that we have is not the world that we want to inhabit and we need to change the systems to make it better. And I think over the long run, hopefully that will happen. And, and, and that's why these, you know, the last third of the book is trying to say, here are some principles for how we can get there. I, I'm not optimistic they're going to be enacted in the next year or two, but I do think that the, a, a better way is possible. And that's my hope. And that's why I wrote the book. Brian Klaas, thank you so much for your time and for your clarity and, and thoughtfulness. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, always a pleasure. Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us is out now, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday mornings, your Start the Week supplement on Mondays, your Culture supplement on Saturday, and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Corruption is a cancer that steals from the poor, eats away at governance and moral fibre, and destroys trust, Robert Zerlich wrote. The question for us individually is what part of that disease we have direct access to, to cut out, and as a society, what we then do to heal the rest of the corpus of our polity and to keep it healthy. No magic solutions here, just a lot of hard work, but maybe realizing that is a start. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.